Thank you. Um, some of you are already smiling and you recognize the character on my slide. Um, there are people here from around the world who won't. Uh, the chap the top is Baldrick, who is a character from a, a very well-loved British comedy series called Blackadder. And whenever the main character got into trouble, um, Baldrick would come along, he was his sidekick, he'd say, don't worry, I have a cunning plan. Um, I'm going to talk about NHS plans. Uh, uh, and again, a bit of context for the non-British people in the room. The NHS was founded in 1948. Um, in most recent history, we appear to have gone into a terminal decline with our NHS. We have constant crises. We have a lack of funding. We are not anywhere near the European uh, GDP percentage for funding a national health service. And this has provoked different responses at different times. And most recently, it provoked, as part of the 70th anniversary, a birthday present from the Prime Minister of £20 billion a year, which was publicised in the press as the most amazing gift, very generous gift. When you begin to unpack it, it actually doesn't meet anywhere near the needs of the NHS to continue providing the services that it requires. Tied in with that gift of £20 billion a year was the requirement that the NHS come up with a new 10-year plan. This was part of the mandate. So I'm going to take you through previous plans, why they have failed, and how we continually fail to learn from those uh, points in history. And to open it up a little bit more broadly, Nuffield Trust, which is one of our three key um, health policy think tanks based here in London, published a document uh, in October called Doomed to Repeat, Lessons from the History of NHS Reform. And a disclosure here, I was asked to comment on the draft of this very late in the day, literally the week before it went to press. At that point, they had no historians involved in producing a document which is called Lessons from the History. <laughs> so I emailed uh, Nigel Edwards, the chief executive, and I said, Nigel, you're doing this launch event at the Institute for Government on the 16th of October. Could you please tell me which historians you've got on the panel? <laughs> he said, what are you doing on the 16th of October? <laughs> So I said, well, I'd be very happy to come to London and take part in that panel for you, and I did. So the document is interesting. It has this quite naive enthusiasm for the plan. One upside should be that having been here so many times before, we can learn a lot about problems that tend to emerge and what can be done to address them, to deal with them. Nuffield come up with six lessons from history. They're up here for you. Uh, don't have a grand plan. Listen to the public. Don't treat the workforce as an afterthought. Make sure funding follows the plan. Don't overrate uh, structural reorganization. Uh, you need the plan that staff can follow. And what Nuffield did in that document, and it's on their website, please go and have a look at it, is that they they chose to focus on the last 20 years, the not-so-long view, as I would call it. And they identified key points at which they thought they could 
take their historical lessons from. These are some of the key ones. I'm going to pick out just a few of them to uh, take you through what they should have learned and why they didn't. Uh, and these, I should say, straddle political um, changes in uh, British government as well. Nuffield, I think, uh, neglected to ask, as health ministers have neglected to ask key questions, planning for what? Are you planning for routine maintenance? Are you planning for improvement? Is efficiency implicit in the plan? Or are you dealing with crisis response? What is the difference between a policy and a plan? Uh, it's not just semantics. The public interpret policies and plans in very different ways. The second key question, which I think has not been adequately addressed so far, is planning by whom? And again, uh, we take for granted, we think we know who makes policies, who makes plans. We assume that it's driven by politicians, supported by civil servants, increasingly by special advisors and by professional representatives. Where do the patients or the citizens fit within um, government planning, NHS planning? And what I've done with my research over the last few years is to draw on these different communities to tell me candidly, because people are quite candid after the event, where they think things have gone wrong. And I've done this through witness seminars. For example, this one here we held last year on the 1991 NHS internal market. The rhetoric of planning emerges for the NHS in the 1960s. It's part of that wider uh, Harold Wilson um, attempt to improve efficiency through uh, mechanisms, beginning with, uh, predating Wilson, the Public Expenditure Survey Committee, looking at where money's being spent, what the impact is. 1962 hospital plan begins to establish standards, what we expect the national element of the National Health Service. We see it in education as well, the Plowden Report, and in the development of tools, technical responses that go along with the political impetus. So planning, programming, budgeting, PPB, program analysis review. We are beginning to see a Britain that is more in control of its data as the data becomes more sophisticated. But alongside all of that planning, we have an NHS that is increasingly not getting the resources it appears to need. And it asks bigger questions, particularly in 1974, 26 years with no tinkering. 26 years from 1948 to 1974, there were no NHS reforms. <laughs> That reform was actually had quite a long genesis starting in 1968, green paper followed by a white paper. It was the first time that they had used an external management consultancy firm, McKinsey's. McKinsey's sent in uh, a relatively junior team who were uh, woefully under-equipped for reorganizing the, one of the most important parts of the British public um, services. There was minimal medical profession engagement, but there was some. The reform was a disaster. 
It introduced an unnecessary level of management. It tied up the existing organisations. It didn't map to local government, as it could well have done. And very quickly, the politicians were putting pressure on the Department of Health and Social Security to come up with new ways to uh, begin to demonstrate what the extra resources were going to buy. So we have uh, priorities emerging in the rhetoric of the NHS from 1976. And uh, the green document here, the way forward, required regional health authorities to come up with annual spending plans and to map them against um, demands, bed occupancy, morbidity, mortality rates. But those, those were, to a certain extent, sticking plasters, which were uh, more significantly addressed through a Royal Commission on the NHS in 1979. And that paid token lip service again to history on the basis of past experience, a substantial improvement in national and community health is more likely to be achieved by preventive measures, i.e. we should shift our focus from um, curative services to a public health agenda. That is not a political um, possibility, certainly in 1979, with the change to the Thatcher governments. And through the 1980s, I'm taking you very quickly through here, I want to, you to appreciate the speed of reform and the, the, the lack of time to evaluate what has gone before. The 1980s, we introduced general management into the NHS through the Griffiths Inquiry. Um, and it culminates in 1989 and 1990 with legislation to introduce one of the most provocative, radical changes to the NHS we've ever seen, which is the internal market, in which we separated out um, providers from purchasers. Uh, and at this point, you would have imagined there would have been some serious retrospective analysis. There wasn't, but we get it with hindsight last year. This is Kenneth Clark, who was Secretary of State for Health at the time of the internal market, speaking last December. He said, the case for reform screamed out. The problem was finding out, A, what reforms we wanted to try, and B, how to get this huge oil tanker resistant to change in any direction, to change direction in a practical way, which would work, which had failed with the previous attempts by Keith Joseph catastrophically because he took this stupid Kinsey's report. He's quite happy for me to leave that in the edited <laughs> transcript and brought in consensus management. Um, Ken Clark spoke at that event alongside John Marks, who was the um, senior, one of the most senior doctors in the country at the time, who was opposing Ken Clark's plans. I asked Kenneth Clark to have a properly audited pilot. His response to me was, you buggers would sabotage it. I got up and walked out. They were at a private dinner together. He knew that I had been on Keith Joseph's working party for the 1974 reorganization. And he knew that I had put my medico-political career on the line by getting it through the BMA against the wishes of the establishment. So witness seminars are useful because the people do speak more freely well after the event. 
but they are not routinely picked up on by the current policy, um, policy makers in a way in which I think they could be. Let's keep going through. So by uh, 1997, we have another change of government. We're back to Labour, new Labour. Um, they have a very different approach. They decide that they are going to go for what they call the targets and terror regime. Payments by results. Um, Gordon Brown, the Chancellor, comes up with an enormous bung of money for the NHS, but it has to be accompanied by modernisation. Modernisation is an agenda that goes across government in New Labour. And the internal market is not replaced, um, not removed completely, but it's replaced by integrated care. And then we see a change of Secretary of State for Health. Frank Dobson leaves quite quickly and is replaced by Alan Milburn. And Milburn brings in a plan with enormous speed. So in 2000, the NHS plan is constructed start to finish from when Tony Blair announces it in January on the David Frost breakfast program. Six months later, they have a plan ready to go. Uh, the um, graphic on the right is to Liam. That's Liam Donaldson, who was the chief medical officer for Alan Milburn. Donaldson was one of a very small team of people who Milburn relied on to drive this plan. Um, the other key one was Simon Stevens, who is now NHS chief executive. They worked, um, although they claimed to have a big tent of coalition support, in practice what they did was to manage it very tightly and in secret. They had interest group involvement through modernization action teams. They had the strategy unit within the Department of Health working with them very closely. Uh, they did um, well-planned media leaks. They invited the medical profession to engage with it, but in a very, very tightly controlled way. So people would be taken into Richmond House and Whitehall and shown a draft and be given um, 45 minutes and a pencil in which to um, make paper notes but not allowed to take the draft away with them, weren't allowed to photograph it. So the consultation with the medical profession was almost back to what we'd seen in 1974, minimal consultation. Um, and it lacked key things. It lacked expertise in workforce planning, which we are now paying the price for. And there was no implementation plan. So there are policy lessons, I think, to be learned. If we go from 74 to the internal market to the 2000 plan, um, we don't address the tensions between different policy levels. We haven't learned that we need to do piloting even if it's politically challenging. And we haven't understood that we need all expert groups at the table, economists, clinicians, managers, and historians. Getting historians to the policy table sometimes takes a bit of deviousness. Um, we certainly weren't there in 2010 when the new um, Lib Conservative government came in and Lansley put through yet another botched reform. 
We were just about getting back there in 2014 when Simon Stevens introduced his five-year forward view. Note it's not called a plan, it's a view. And then, of course, most recently, the 10-year plan. So how do we then get the historians to the table? Uh, this was the 7th of July, the NHS's birthday, and I had used all my ways of contact channels of influence with the Department of Health to get an interview with Jeremy Hunt, who was then the Secretary of State for Health, because I wanted to use it for the final episode of my Radio 4 series, National Health Stories. I finally got it. Um, and I put the direct question to him. I can't play it for you because apparently I've been sold to BBC Worldwide and not allowed to play it. Um, but it is still there. If you go and hunt, the omnibus editions are still on the um, BBC Sounds iPlayer system. You can hear me ask him, why don't we learn from history? Why hasn't the NHS learned from these horrendous mistakes? And he, he says, yes, we need we do need to get better, we need to find new forms of engagement. I did go on to ask him why no Secretary of State for Health had become Prime Minister. <laughs> At which he sat across the table from me and his little grin crept across his face. 24 hours later, I possibly understood the nature for that grin because that was when he was shuffled, um, shuffled to be um, uh, Foreign Secretary. <laughs> And I had to go back into the studio to re-record the links to say that I interviewed the former Secretary of State. So I almost had, a, that fleeting time, I had that direct engagement, historian to policymaker. And then, as Roberta said, the, you know, the, the chairs change and the institutional memory fades and you get a new Secretary of State coming in who has to start all over again. So I hope that's given you some idea of the challenges, but also the opportunities of using history, particularly on a contentious issue such as NHS reform. Thank you.